This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. And you're listening to Offspring, a podcast all about the anxieties of a parenting journey. This is episode two, 36 hours. Just a content note, this episode is going to deal with the topics of miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. I remember that there was a time, a specific time, early on in my wife's pregnancy where I was really starting to think about miscarriages and I knew I had to write something down or record something or have some decent conversations about them because I needed to get my thoughts out and process them. Gemma, my wife, was only at seven weeks so it was a topic right at the front of both of our minds but it was the first time I'd really had to engage with it and I had all kinds of statistics and observations and things that I was thinking about that I needed to express. So I started writing. But what I didn't anticipate was that two days after I started typing, we would have our first big miscarriage scare of the pregnancy. And some of those profound observations I typed out on Monday evening were made redundant by the 48-hour emotional roller coaster we rode over Wednesday and Thursday night. It was a surreal experience, one I wasn't prepared for, and I don't think Gemma was prepared for it either. It took me a while to make sense of it. Now, to give you some context, right on the six-week mark, Gemma went from unbridled abundant joy to some of the most violent, quote, morning sickness you will ever see. Now, I put those sarcastic quote marks around the term morning sickness because she was sick 24 hours a day. It's kind of like a bloke came up with that name or something. After a week of the unceasing illness, she started getting more abnormal symptoms, and specifically there was a sharp pain in her abdomen. And there wasn't regular cramping, and it was beginning to overwhelm her. Nervously, she contacted our midwives, who instructed her to get immediately to ED, as they were worried that these were signs of an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy, for anyone unfamiliar, like I was at that time, is when the fetus is actually formed outside the uterus. Obviously, this is not a viable pregnancy. An hour later, she was lying on a hospital bed getting the first of three ultrasounds for the night from the brilliant staff at Waikato Hospital. And I really can't say enough about how good they've been all the times we've been up there. The first two doctors couldn't actually locate the fetus as it wasn't their speciality. Worryingly though, it did appear that there was fluid in the general region, which usually indicates blood. We both stared at the impossibly vague ultrasound screen with no idea what we were looking at. 
As we also both anxiously tried to read the stone-faced doctors as they puzzlingly moved the wand around, every repeated circuit felt like it must have been the worst possible news, and every hesitation or slight eyebrow raise implied that they were about to give us a grim conclusion. The doctors both told us that they couldn't really conclude anything, and that we would need to see an ultrasound specialist to have them investigate. After another couple of hours and more rounds of questioning, Gemma was put on the move to get a transvaginal scan. I waited nervously in the short stay room, reading my phone and mentally diagnosing the other people there. That's an overdose. That might be an ectopic pregnancy as well. This more comprehensive scan found that there was a fetus in utero and everything was going to be okay, for the moment anyway. They told us that the bleed was actually something that 30% of women experienced and it shouldn't be a problem. It was a false alarm. It was a false alarm for the ectopic pregnancy and we were in the clear. The pain wasn't subsiding, however, so a surgeon popped in to see us and he brought with him a diagnosis of appendicitis, which is not exactly what you want to hear at 1am with a pregnant wife. But after lots more testing and going back and forth over the next day, doctors cancelled the surgery they had booked in the night before. Tests were starting to normalise and the pain was slowly subsiding. So they decided it wasn't worth the risk to the fetus. Gemma was discharged after 36 hours and we left with a combination of both confusion and relief. Sitting at home a couple of days later, I was still riddled with the same dread that I always had about becoming a father. I had no idea how on earth I could possibly cope with parenthood and I just continually visualized this resentment-laced failure in my future. I didn't know what it took to be a father. All I knew was that whatever it did take, I sure as hell didn't have. What was kind of surprising about that week though was just how much the nausea and emotional fatigue changed me as it washed over me. For the first time, really, the idea of that baby not making it was something that I genuinely feared, and it became something that I couldn't stop thinking about. I already felt that I was feeling this way before the drama of the week, but I had really no idea how intense that feeling could be. Whatever, quote, chill, end quote, that might have been still lingering in the back of my head a few days before had been definitively vanquished. If before this moment my anxiety levels had been about a 3 out of 10, they had suddenly skyrocketed up to about a 13. Now, the notion that someone with a pregnant wife would be scared of miscarriages hardly seems noteworthy. Embarrassingly though, in my case, this newfound intense fear did come as a massive surprise to me. I don't like to admit this, but miscarriages are something that I did not think would be a particularly huge deal. I honestly just felt that they would be something we would have a high probability of encountering, and we would inevitably move on from relatively quickly. Now, if you think that's quite a monstrous opinion to hold, I can't really argue with you. Hindsight has made me ashamed of many things in my life. I have multiple mental health conditions that are chronic, Dysthymia and obsessive compulsive disorder being the most affecting, and they bring with them a lot of shame and guilt at the best of times over the smallest things. But I think that my shame and guilt over these feelings was somewhat earned. I don't think there's much that's made me more embarrassed than having this cavalier attitude towards a possibility 
of people going through miscarriage. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, I think most of them are just steeped in male privilege and ignorance. But I also viewed miscarriage through a very myopic lens because it felt like a sensible defense strategy. It's easy to think of a miscarriage as something purely mechanical when you are removed from its reality. The vast majority of miscarriages occur because something is wrong with DNA and the pregnancy, and subsequently, once it notices this aberration, the mother's body rapidly rejects what it was just pumping endless energy into fostering. It's entirely out of our hands, and it just sounds so rational when you put it in those terms. And I suppose more pessimistically or more cynically, I've always also had a sort of perverse notion that a miscarriage would be inevitable. Unfortunately, numerous women in our orbit have gone through miscarriages, multiple miscarriages. I've never spoken to any of them about the struggles because even if I wanted to, which I didn't, I would have no idea how to approach them. Because I tend to, like, how do we put this delicately? Because I, because I tend to prepare for the worse, that small sample size has always been representative of imagined data that doesn't really have any basis in reality. Now, it would be ego-soothing to say that I was only concerned with strategically protecting our emotions, but unfortunately for my sense of self-worth, that just isn't true. I wouldn't be honest if I didn't admit that part of me also imagined that a miscarriage would have allowed me to avoid facing my fatherhood fears a little longer. The simple fact that I would have got more time to be free of parental obligations was a silver lining that I was not even really slightly guilty to hold. And I don't like this part of my older self. This part of me willfully chose to not consider the pain, the trauma, the heartache, and just the physical agony of a miscarriage, and how that would affect the person I loved more than anything. This part of me is so intentionally ignorant that it can equate not speaking about miscarriages as proof that they are universal and just not that big a deal. But there's no point in pretending that this part of me didn't exist. What I can truthfully say though is that the moment my wife became pregnant, that part of me withered away. And I'm proud of that. It is still hard to know, however, that it took my own wife getting pregnant for that version of me to actually pack up and leave. I was 35 years old. There's no excuse for that part of me to have hung around that long. He stayed there because of something I would describe as entrenched entitlement. Initially, when James had that first positive pregnancy test, it was the potential impact on her that made me realize what a twat I had been. She's an optimist by nature, and her optimism is her most important tool in facing adversity. She drives forward, preparing for the best, fully confident that she can cope with the adversity if it goes awry. And I don't doubt that she would have coped if the worst thing happened, because that's her skill. But having seen what that little blueberry in her belly meant to her... I knew that it would be a steeper mountain than she could have ever imagined before that. She would have been so hurt. And the sudden visualization of her hurting like that was like being hit with a brick cricket bat. What genuinely shocked me that week though, was that I was no longer just fearing for her well-being. I finally feared to lose the opportunity of being scared of my impending fatherhood more than the imminent fatherhood itself, which was kind of wild. 
Somewhere in the seven weeks leading up to that moment, I'd become attached to the sub one centimeter long reptile taking up residence in Gemma's uterus. And that's a whole lot quicker than I had anticipated that transformation taking. Part of me was nervous that it would never have taken place at all. On the one hand, I was pleased because that's a sign of growth. But on the other, I sort of had the daunting prospect of 33 more weeks of this pregnancy to go in the best case scenario. Now there's a whole lot of years left to go where my anxiety is probably going to keep intensifying and hopefully it'll just intensify for the rest of my life. And that's an overwhelming realization still right now. The learnings from that week were not just personal though, because having absorbed all those experiences and emotions, I was left kind of bewildered by how ass backwards we are when it comes to discussing this topic. It's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to start here early on in this series by talking about this topic. I'm aware that this is another embarrassingly naive take stemming from someone who likes to probably act woke, but you know, is still cozied up to the patriarchy. But grasping how little we say about a topic that affects so many people legitimately shocked me. And it still is something that shocks me to this day. The conventional wisdom I absorbed from everyone around us was that you are meant to wait until 12 weeks until you tell people that you're going to be having a baby. The idea I'm guessing is that this prevents you from having to deal with breaking the news to people if you lose the pregnancy during that earlier danger zone. I mean, it's kind of like my earlier myopic view of miscarriage itself. And like that, it seems so rational, just such a healthy way of approaching this. But I'm very conflicted about this idea today. As a couple, we eschewed that collective wisdom when it came to telling people around us. And there wasn't a lot of thought or justification involved in this decision. And if I'm gonna be frank, We simply told our families and close friends as soon as we found out because it seemed too hard to keep it a secret. We also knew that they would be excited and we'd be able to cope if things went south and they would be able to cope too. And as it turns out, it was unexpectedly one of the best decisions we ever made. We ended up having an accidental support network to share in anything that did go wrong and to help keep things positive. Our families helped us through that moment, and I have enormous gratitude for their help in sharing the emotional load. We sort of felt like that if we did end up miscarrying, that we would have been leaning on them to help us, and we would do the same if the situations were reversed. Given that we lean on our families so much now with everything in our parenting journey, it just seems implausible in hindsight that we would have considered anything different. Medical professionals understandably want us to change how we perceive the issue of miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies so that women can have better tools to deal with them when they arise since miscarrying is such a common occurrence. I mean, at our first GP appointment after Gemma got pregnant, I think we were told it was like one in three pregnancies will end in miscarriage. So if that's the case, it makes sense that we should probably think in more mechanical terms to soften the blow. Additionally, People deal with these kinds of issues in their own way. There's no right way to heal. And lots of people prefer undertaking healing and privacy, and I respect that. But I also can't 
quite shake the feeling that by encouraging people to keep quiet until 12 weeks, we're tacitly trying to keep a lid on the topic. Altogether, it feels like we're doing what we do with all questions of reproductive health, which is to nudge them to the side so that men aren't uncomfortable. There's a disconnect, I feel. We want to frame the topic as something that is natural and that can't be helped. But we also discourage people from talking about early pregnancy in case they have to deal with the consequences of their pregnancy ending prematurely. Surely we can't have it both ways. We can either talk about these things openly and honestly, or we can normalise silence and all the implications of failure that silence brings about. I don't know what the answers are, and I feel like I'm veering very closely into the realm of mansplaining women's health to women and medical experts in that regard. But it does feel like we're kind of throwing pregnant women under the bus again by normalising superstition and tradition instead of encouraging the building of support networks. I don't think I'm the only one that feels like this. In fact, the government put in place provisions this year that would allow people that have gone through a miscarriage to actually take some time off work as part of bereavement leave. When speaking about why this has taken so long to come into place, Jenny Anderson made some really interesting points to Susie Ferguson on Morning Report earlier in the year. And they covered a few things, but the stuff around stigma and people's blasé attitude towards miscarriage I thought was particularly interesting. Now, Labour MP Ginny Anderson hopes a change to bereavement leave will reduce the stigma associated with miscarriage. Last night, Parliament unanimously passed legislation giving parents three days of bereavement leave following a miscarriage or stillbirth. Earlier, I spoke to Ms Anderson and she told me the bill came directly from constituents calling for the law to change and the response has been overwhelming. So many women have told stories of, of wanting to talk more about the experience they had when, when having a miscarriage. So I think that while it's a small change in the law, I think it's actually hopefully helped facilitate more open discussions around issues such as stillbirth, childbirth and also miscarriage. Something like miscarriage is often can be seen as something quite minor, but how serious can it be for women? Women are admitted to hospital, you know, and sometimes can be, you know, a, a couple of weeks physically alone to get back on, um, on their feet and able to work. Uh, and that's not even talking about the emotional side and the trauma that can be um, of, of losing a child. So I think that there's a full spectrum of the experiences in both physical and mental and emotional that you go through. So it's quite difficult to classify just one particular um, type of experience. How is this going to work in practice? Will people have to share personal medical information to, to access this bereavement leave? Uh, it applies to anyone who says they've had a miscarriage. So um, we, we had this debate at Select Committee and it was an interesting one. And it was actually spoken in comparison with bereavement leave. So if you had a bereavement in your family, typically you're not expected to show a death certificate of your grandparent or partner. So you were, you were taken at face value. And so it goes to that um, Section 5 in the Employment Relations Act, which is that good relationship with employee-employer. That if, you, if you've got some trust and you say this has happened, then there should be um, a good understanding between both that three days is necessary and quite small amount of time to be able to take time to grieve. And this also applies to partners and what other circumstances? Yeah, definitely. It applies to partners and it also applies to those for surrogacy and adoption. We felt that that um, was only fair and right to also extend those rights to those people as well. I don't know. Perhaps I would have completely different emotions on this if we had a completely different outcome. 
it is all hypothetical and I don't know what emotional journeys I would have been on if things had turned out differently. It just seems so unlikely given how much we've leaned on everyone around us for everything so far in this pregnancy and parenthood journey. I just can't imagine how we could get through that kind of loss alone. They told me once, nothing grows when a house in a home is a true, honestly, when it's all a part of me. A couple years of waiting rooms, finding God and losing to want to scream, but what's the use? Lying awake and I stare at the door, I just can't take it no more. They told me it's useless, there's no hope in store But somehow I just want you more Want you more Somehow I just want you more Want you more Somehow I just want you more Wooden floors and little feet Flower bud and concrete Feeling so incomplete Wonder will we ever meet And would you know that right away How hard I try to see your face A little screen, a photograph Mine to take I sit and I stare at your clothes in the drawer I cry and my knuckles get sore Cause I still believe it won't be like before And now somehow I just want you That song was called More, and it was by American artist Halsey off her 2020 album Manic. And there are a couple of other pieces of music that we used in this episode that are worth referencing. The first is a cover of the opening track from Philip Glass's landmark album Glassworks, and that was performed by Icelandic composer Vikingur Olofsson. And now I assume I pronounced his name wrong, so if you are Icelandic or you speak Icelandic, I apologize for my terrible, terrible pronunciation. The other song worth mentioning is Balabaristas, and that's by Oakland band Tricetsa. They've been around since 1997 and have an amazing back catalogue of all sorts of post-rock sounds that are worth checking out. I also just wanted to add a little postscript to the show that I actually forgot about until after I'd finished recording. I was speaking with Gemma about this whole episode and we were sort of recalling it, and she reminded me that 
when we went to the doctors, like our, our GP, I mean, for a follow-up a couple of weeks after this incident in the hospital, the doctor revealed to us that there were some notes on the chart that we apparently hadn't been made privy to at the hospital. What the doctors at the hospital suspected, and they, they have no way of knowing if this is true, they have no way of proving it, so we don't know at all if this is what happened, but we still thought it was kind of comical anyway, was they, they suspected that there might have actually been twins in utero, and Ava essentially consumed her other twin. And we thought that was kind of shocking and surprising and frankly a little bit horrifying but apparently this is not that uncommon an occurrence in pregnancy and you wouldn't really know. It's When it does happen, you, you really wouldn't actually have any indication because it's not like they send you a memo saying, by the way, I just consumed my twin. I hope you're okay with that. Um, but that's just an interesting little note I thought I should add to the episode. Offspring is written and produced by me, Bevan Morgan, at Momo Studios, and the one and only Kitty Kitty Roa, Aotearoa. You can get in touch with me via email, it's very straightforward, it's just offspringpodcast, or one word, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feedback and any thoughts for future episodes that you think might be interesting. You can also touch base with me on Twitter, it's still a bit of a dead zone there to be honest, but by all means, I would love to have you as a follower. And that's just at offspringcast, all one word. You can also find some of my older writings about pop culture and history, some of them probably quite badly dated now, but they can be found on my personal website, which is just www.bevanmorgan.com. Thanks so much as well to FreeFM 89.0 and accessmedia.nz for their help in distribution and in getting this podcast out there. And of course, of course, thanks also to you for listening. Hopefully, we'll catch up next week.
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.